but primarily the congregations we get involved with are churches that have been through a lot of corporate pain. Mm -hmm. By corporate pain, I mean pain that has impacted the entire congregation. They had stones in their hands the night that, that we reviewed the history of that church, they would have killed me. It was, wow. it was so wow. bad that they apologized at the next meeting. And we need to become more mature, so we need to deal with things in a healthy way. Or are there unresolved issues below the surface of our relationships, particularly among the leadership, that the Lord is unhappy about, so he's brought conflict into the church discipline church? everybody want to welcome you again to the before you quit podcast where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard and man does it get hard sometimes that is why we do what we do uh, my name is Mitch Schultz and I'm your host and I'm also the director of a ministry called fruitful vine ministry it's uh, generally accepted that most people who leave churches uh, do so because of personal conflict not really because of theological differences uh, I'm not sure that that's something that's been studied, but uh, it certainly has been my observation. And when I talk to other pastors, they acknowledge, yeah, usually, you know, when people leave churches, it's less about, uh, you know, conflict over belief system or theology. It's more because something happened and there was conflict, personal conflict with someone else. Uh, differences in opinion, hurt feelings, uh, unresolved conflict, things like that. And uh, we, we hear really too often of churches that are hurting uh, because there has been a pattern of conflict. And sometimes this pain can last a long time. It can last for years. Um, is it possible, and we're going to be asking this question today, that God is, is more behind that pain than we might think? Is it possible that a church is hurting because God is wanting to get attention uh, of that church? And uh, oftentimes, visible conflict in the church is a, is a symptom of something more serious. And, and again, is it possible that God is wanting to bring to the surface a deeper pain uh, or a sin issue or rebellion? And while we, we talk a lot in these podcasts about hurting pastors, we haven't said a whole lot about churches that hurt. Uh, what happens when a church has a history of conflict or a history of pastors who stay for only several years? Is that a symptomatic, that there's something wrong uh, within the body that he's there to serve? I remember when we interviewed Dennis Maynard some months ago on the subject of when sheep attack, uh, that Dr. Maynard referred to a church that he had worked with once uh, with, I think, a 100-year history. And in that 100 years, there had been more than 50 pastors serving that church in that time period. I think it'd be safe to say that something was wrong with the heart of that church, uh, so we're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be talking about healing the heart of a church. We're going to talk to an expert on hurting churches, a man who's given his life to help churches who are hurting to become healthy again. And together today, we want to understand what God is really saying when there is a pattern of rebellion or a pattern of conflict within the church, and what might it take to bring about healing. Uh, Mark is very intentional about this. He founded a ministry called Blessing Point Ministries. Uh, which works to enhance the fruitfulness of healthier ministries and heal wounded congregations. Uh, Mark Bar Barnard, that we're going to be talking to today, authored several books related to church health. His latest book, Screw Tapes versus the Church, explores the nature of corporate spiritual warfare. 
And Mark is a father and a grandfather and a loving husband uh, to his wife of 30 years. And you can learn more about what Mark does in his, uh, on his website, uh, www.blessingpoint.org. Uh, Mark and I are good friends. We've worked together before, and I just look forward so much to having this conversation with him again today to talk specifically about healing the heart of your church. All right, I'm excited to have on, the, uh, on Zoom conferencing here a good friend of mine, uh, Mark Barnard, and a lot of people call you Bernard, right? That's correct. Yeah. And and what's an easy way to remember your last name? I will I will answer to either. Okay. Uh, one lady called me on the phone and asked if Pastor Barnyard was there. That <laughs> that's the easiest way to remember it, but totally wrong. It's it's just like barn and an art. So okay. Barnard. Did, did you have any nicknames when you were growing up given to you? Uh, just that one. Uh, that last uh, malicious turn of my last name to <laughs> Barnard Barnyard. So, okay, all right. Let's get uh, let's get past that. Uh, hey, Mark, you are in a ministry called uh, Blessing Point, uh, and also another term or title that's used is healing the heart of your church, which is really uh, a lot of the vision or, or vis- uh, mission of your church. There's also a book that is titled that, which we'll talk about in a few moments. Uh, how would you sum up the the vision and mission of Blessing Point? Of what? Tell us what you do, why you do it. Sure. Well, while we're talking about names, uh, the name Blessing Point comes from the Book of Haggai, uh, the second chapter, nineteenth verse, where uh, the prophet, the Lord says to the prophet there that from this day on I will bless you. You know, the people of Israel had had uh, been through a lot. They had returned to the homeland, but instead of giving attention to the temple, they fixed up their own homes and kind of forgot about the Lord, and and then they repented. And that sense of blessing they enjoyed as a people had gone missing, but when they repented and dealt with their issues, that sense of blessing returned to them. So uh, that is really kind of the heart of our ministry. We're leading churches to hear from the Lord afresh and to respond to Him, which often includes repentance. Um, but our vision, in more of a New Testament angle, our vision is tied to the bride of Christ. We kind of resonate with Ephesians five twenty-seven, you know, where the Lord says that he's preparing a bride without spot or wrinkle. And so our passion is to restore the radiance of Christ's bride. And, you know, as we look at our culture in the church, particularly in, in the United States, we see its waning influence. We see its intimidation and in the face of the world's attack. We see a lot of corruption on the inside. So there's a lot of room for radiance uh, restoration mm-hmm. in the body of Christ. Where is the voice we once enjoyed? Where is the power and authority of the Holy Spirit in people's lives that the church once so strongly projected? Yeah. So everything you everything you do is is really to remind the church who who they really who we really are that we are the bride of Christ and we have lost yeah. sight of that. Yeah, we we kind of feel like we're the friend of the bridegroom, mm-hmm. you know, getting getting the old girl ready for the nice. for the uh, ceremony. I love that imagery. That's great. Well, hey, so so I like to ask the this question of people sometimes. You're sitting in an airplane. You have a few minutes to talk with someone. They ask you, "Hey, Mark, what do you do? What's your answer?" Well, we uh, come alongside congregations. Uh, we come alongside healthier ones to increase their fruitfulness. But primarily the congregations we get involved with are churches that have been through a lot of corporate pain. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And by corporate pain, I mean pain that has impacted the entire congregation. And often you'll find these these congregations have been through cycles of repetitive pain through the years of their existence. And so we kind of come alongside them and and try to facilitate healing in congregations that have experienced a lot of crisis. Yeah, and you have a very systematic way that you do that, which we'll we'll talk about. We'll talk about your approach. Uh, but in, in summary, again, what you do is you come alongside either healthy or hurting churches. If they're healthy, it's to maintain their health, to continue to have that perspective that they're the bride of Christ and that they're most fruitful when they are uh, living that first love that Ephesians talks about or Revelation talks about. And uh, to hurting churches, uh, it's to identify why the church is hurting and bring them to a point of healing. Um, let's talk about you for just a few moments because, uh, you know, you, you didn't just wake up one morning and say, hey, I think I'm going to do this. There was obviously a journey, a process. Uh, how did you end up in this ministry? Tell us a little bit about Mark Barnyard's story. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mitch, for bringing that up again. Uh, I'm going to have to think of a pejorative last name for you. <laughs> Schulte. Yeah, it'll come. Yeah, yeah, to go way back, I, uh, you know, I got converted when I was 15. It was a radical transformation. I did not come from a evangelical family. Uh, ended up going to Nyack College. It was a Bible major in New York, and then ended up doing a master's degree in California. And came to where I live now, outside of Atlanta, to plant a church. And uh, was going well for about a year. Then the, the, the train came off the tracks. I uh, left ministry for about 10 years. And at the end of that 10-year period, I was minding my own business and got a phone call out of the blue. And I was asked to preach in a church not far from here, about 45 minutes. I had not preached in 10 years. And mm. so I prayed and got clearance. I went there. As soon as I got to the church, though, I knew something was off kilter. I could just feel something in the spirit of the church was off, just how it impressed me just showing up. I didn't know what it was. And uh, around the same time, I got a book in the mail from a friend of mine called Healing the Heart of Your Church. It was written by Dr. Kenneth Quick, and this was back in 2004. And I took it with me on vacation. And as I'm reading the book, uh, the the Lord is telling me in my spirit, this book is for this church. church and I went back to the church to preach again and they asked me to be the interim pastor okay and I said I will be the interim pastor subject to us going through this book together well they they were wore out leaders they might have looked a little askance at me when I suggested that but they were courageous and they were willing and they read the book and supposed to be three nights of reviewing the church's history to hear what the Lord was saying to them through that history turned into five nights much longer each night Hmm. And uh, what we discovered fairly quickly was that the church had split three times in nine years. And that immediately explained the spirit you felt when you walked into the church. Yeah, when you, when you hear that, there's the reason why. A church. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so they were depleted. They had lost their identity as a church. They didn't know who they were, who they were anymore. They were not seen. They expected fruit that they anticipated. The church had grown from 125 people to 25 people in in those uh, nine years. So they had dramatically shrunk in size 
And how many pastors? Like, how many pastors had they had in those nine years? They had had well. They had the pastor under which they split from the previous church. They had another pastor. Then they had the third pastor. Okay, so by average of every three years, they were getting a new yeah, pastor. Yeah, you yeah. could say. Yeah. yeah. So they uh, they went through the process, and uh, as we discovered that, you know, we discover these splits, and we're trying to figure out why the church keeps on splitting, uh-huh. and it becomes painfully apparent by one of the evenings we're working together that the church had a problem submitting to constituted authority. Mm. Now this was their own evaluation. It wasn't me telling them what their problem was. This is them coming to the conclusion based on the pattern of behavior in the church's history. And as those men prayed around that table, we sat around uh, and repented of this unwillingness to submit to authority. When we were done praying, the Holy Spirit was so thick in the room, none of us could move. Mm. And I was like, what in the world has just happened here? And so we decided to follow the book's prescription, and we shared with the congregation what we discovered. We kind of had a little come-to-Jesus meeting, a repentance service, and uh, I was I was just utterly taken aback because people were confessing in this service their own problems with authority. Uh, there were tears. It was grief. It was the closest thing to revival I'd ever been a part of. Wow. And wow. I, I'm still in real estate at this time. I was out of uh, ministry for 10 years selling real estate. I thought, what am I supposed to do now? Go back mm. to real estate? You yeah, know? yeah. When you've experienced something like that, certainly. Oh, wow. And I had always felt called to repentance and revival, but I, I didn't know it could happen this way by facilitating a group of leaders through this process. And so that church eventually led to a second church in Georgia. And that second church was 10 times uh, worse condition than the first church. And if they had stones in their hands the night that we reviewed the history of that church, they would have killed me. It was wow. it was wow. so bad that they apologized at the next meeting. My goodness. Or just to just interrupt. So just to kind of catch up um, with the, the journey here, uh, you, 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 you were an interim in a church and, um, organically something happened and as that happened did you were you at a point where you say hey this is reproducible i could take this is that how the second church came into this or or was that still i don't think i thought it through that clearly all i knew was that um i got requested to be the interim pastor at a church down the road and when i when i got there uh it was it was painfully obvious that the church was unhealthy and sick Right of a different of a different disease. Mm-hmm. You know, You're talking about the second had, church now. Second church, okay. yeah. The first church had, had suffered all these church splits. Mm-hmm. This second church had a long history of abusing and disposing of its pastor, and and I in a strange, odd way, the church was made up of a lot of unhealthy folks, and I don't mean just physically; I mean emotionally unhealthy. And it had boiled down to this uh, level of humanity that. Uh, and yet, at the same time, there were some men in the church who I consider them 10-talent men. And I had to ask myself, what are these 10-talent men doing at a one-talent church? But, you know, as I evaluated that, these men were there because they wanted to control things. And they wanted to be in charge and have things their way. So it was one of these churches you stumble into that, where, you know, the decisions and board meetings are made in the car before they get to the board meeting. And, and I'm sharing things here on a pretty real level. And yeah. I, don't want to be, I don't want to discourage listeners by um, by sharing things that sometimes happen in the body of Christ, but in a very real way, 
uh, there are things that should never happen in churches. Yeah, yeah my, my listeners are accustomed to hearing about these stories because we, I, I talk a lot about it. We've interviewed quite a few people that are, you know, representing, uh, you know, s- someone who is seeking to help hurting churches. So, yeah, this is a necessary conversation, Mark. Um, so what was the outcome of the second church? Amazing. Uh, they, wow. at least in the short term, it was amazing. The, okay. the lions on the board, right, mm-hmm. did not see the need to repent. The lambs on the board all saw the need to repent. Shockingly, because I had no assurance this was going to work, the lions submitted to the lambs. Mm-hmm. It was it was unbelievable. Interesting. They, that's yeah. That's that's brokenness. It's posture of humility. Well, hopefully. Yeah. They you know they had their repentance service as well, and even the heavy hitter guys after the service could feel a palpable change in the church. And they told me the burden has been lifted. I mean, mm-hmm. you can feel the heaviness in these churches, gumming up of the spiritual gumming up of the work. And when and when a church repents of its past wounds and pain and sin. It's almost as if somebody in heaven flips a switch and the spirit of the place changes. Wow. And even those who are part of the issue, part of the problems, contribute to the problems, can feel the change in the spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, they, they had a wonderful turnaround that lasted about two weeks. <laughs> oh, wow. Because what, unfortunately what happened in that situation was that the, uh, the lions in the church reasserted their mm-hmm. old ways. And the lambs fell back into their acquiescing ways. That church ended up closing within two years. Some of the ministry that we do is kind of a line in the sand for churches. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Lord is very patient with churches when they don't know what the issues are he has with. But when they come to grips with them and then go backwards after repenting, we see him take a very different stance with these churches. And he's much more willing to... Uh, extinguish their candles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I see that as kind of a hospice chaplain. Your involvement might be to make the dying process as comfortable as possible. <laughs> uh, all right, so so out of those two experiences, uh, at what point did uh, ministry start to form, and w- at what point did you say, "Hey, there is something here mm-hmm. that is is needed"? Because again, I I don't have anybody else doing what you do, mm-hmm. and um, as this was happening to you personally. Uh, there, there had to been a moment where you thought, "Hey, this is this is something needed. I'm going to start a ministry with it." Well, yeah, it was it was after the second church. Okay, and it was around the time I a couple things happened to confirm it. One, I ran into some conflict in my job at real estate, which was mm-hmm. unbeknownst to me, mm-hmm. unexpected, fully blindsided me. So that kind of softened me up to make a transition. Okay, wow. Then at the, around the same time, my daughter was going off to college, and she wrote me one of these wonderful Dear Dad love. Dear Dad, I appreciate you, you know, letters as she's going off. But she quoted a passage of Scripture in there. I think it's Isaiah 44 where the prophet says, forget the former things. I'm about to do something new. Mm-hmm. Well, unbeknownst to my wife or myself, my wife uh, was reading Scripture, and she got the same passage and communicated to mm-hmm. me. Wow. But no one, it's your wife's idea. <laughs> You go down the road in ministry. You know, you've got some credibility. Yeah. So that nice. all these kind of convergence of mm-hmm. events happened that uh, gave me the courage to consider doing it. Okay. All right. We'll talk a little bit more about what that ministry entails, uh, what it looks like when you connect with a church. Um, you you mentioned, and we talked a little bit about where this was brought up, and I I said it was on your website or one of your blogs that, and I and I think this is true. I've seen this in in my experience, that, that most people uh, leave churches because of conflict, personal conflict, 
less over uh, theological tensions. Um, I wish it was more over theological tension. Sometimes it is. Um, and what I mean by that is that if, um, you know, if, a, if people, when they experience hardship, they stay together, live, you know, live in harmony, God can, can really work through that. But why, why do you think that's the case, that people leave mostly because of conflict? Well, I think conflict is extremely painful. And in a lot of churches across the country, churches are made up of families that are related to each other. Mm -hmm. So when conflict unfolds in an unhealthy way in a church, I mean, a church is a family, so you're going to have conflict. And really the issue is when the conflict gets handled in an unhealthy way, it really impacts relationships and almost gets too painful for people to, it exceeds their level of tolerance for pain. Mm -hmm. And so they exit the church. It's uh, easier to leave than to deal with it, you're saying. Yeah, I call them back porch Christians. They usually don't go to church after that. They just Mm -hmm. kind of sit on the back porch on Sunday morning, drink coffee, and maybe read the scriptures. But they're not willing to expose themselves to further uh, trauma. Yeah. And so, so that happens. Now, this is a problem that has been with us since the Reformation. You talk about splitting over theological issues. I was reading a book by Oz Guinness recently, and he has a quote in there that at the beginning of the 20th century, there were 1,500 denominations in the United States. Uh-huh. And at the end of the 20th century, there were 22,000 uh-huh. denominations in the United States. So my goodness, yeah. what's going on in the body of Christ? So I think somehow, particularly, we're Americans, we're in America, perhaps in America, we have a very low threshold for pain in churches and a very... Uh, much willingness to uh, vacate if we don't like what's going on. Yeah, and, and I think we have a low view of what family means in, in the church uh, experience. Um, you know, I, I used to tell people when this conversation would come up, you know, when should you leave a church? I'd say, well, if the three or four reasons, if the pastor is, uh, is preaching heretically and the elders are not doing anything about it, uh, secondly, if if there's just unresolved conflict and it's just obvious that it's best to leave. And then uh, the third one is if God's calling you to another ministry to start something. Uh, but it does seem, I, I agree with you, threshold, great term, uh, low view of families, how I would put it. Um, now, conflict can be good. Uh, you look at, you know, even starting in Genesis where People were together, united, and Jesus, God scattered them, uh, gave them different languages. I mean, that was part of pushing humanity to do what they were called to do, and that's to spread out and, and multiply. Um, and, and even today, conflict, and you're seeing this certainly true in your ministry, is a, is a warning that something is wrong. How, so how, when you see conflict, what is, what is the first thing that you you, you ask yourself or you ask other people? Well, I think, you know, if it's, if it's conflict handled in a healthy way, that is a good thing. Yeah. Um, church discipline, is it happening? Is church discipline happening in your church? Uh, if it's not, then you're going to have, you're going to have larger issues shadow your ministry. Uh, when I see conflict in a church, I have to discern is the conflict something that is a one-off deal where, you know, where you have to face it and fight through it and deal with it uh, in a God-honoring way. Because sometimes the way we deal with conflict can cause us as much trouble as the conflict itself. So we got to deal with it in a God-honoring way. Or here's the, here's the real paradigm shift. 
Has the Lord brought conflict into your church because he's unhappy about a deeper issue? That's what we have to discern. You know, is, is this a one-off thing? That's something that we just have to go through for the time being that the Lord is maybe testing us as a church and we need to become more mature. So we need to deal with things in a healthy way. Or are there unresolved issues below the surface of our relationships, particularly among the leadership? that the Lord is unhappy about, so he's brought conflict into the church to discipline the church, to bring their attention to the underlying issues. You, you call that corporate pain, that God will cause corporate pain to get the attention of the church. What, what do you mean by that? And, and maybe I'm sure you've seen that pattern in Scripture. What are some of the biblical frameworks for, uh, for us to understand well, that? Yeah, you can see in the Old Testament the way he dealt with Israel. You can see it uh, particularly in his call, his promise of revival. We all know Second Chronicles 7.14, but no one pays attention to the verse beforehand, which talks about God bringing famine and drought mm. and pestilence into the land. And then if my people who are called by my name. So he's actually using pain that impacts the entire nation to drive them to seek his face. Mm. So you see that pattern in the judges that cycle over and over again. Uh, and the way he dealt with Achan and the pain he brought into the nation of Israel at that point, the pain he brought into the nation uh, when David numbered the people or when Saul exterminated the Gibeonites, it's thick in the Old Testament. Now, making the transition into the New Testament, you see the same thing. Primarily, you see it in the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Revelation. And it comes out explicitly in chapter 3, verse 19, where Jesus says, Those I love, I reprove and discipline. Now, we know the Lord talks about discipline in Hebrews 12, but it's not necessarily corporate discipline there. It's individual discipline. Yes. But in Revelation 3.19, he is addressing that to the church as a whole at Laodicea. He's not addressing it to an individual. He's calling to the church to repent, which Laodicea needed to do. And he is reiterating to them that he loves them. That's why he has sent the pain into their community for them to seek his face about the real message attached to the pain so they can understand what he's saying to them and repent or deal with the issue. All right, talk about what you do when the church has called you uh, from beginning to end. Just kind of yeah. work out that process well, with us. Let's assume we've come to an agreement that the church uh, wants to, um, senses the Lord's leading to bring Blessing Point in. Usually we'll ask them first to go to our website and fill out what we call a church scan inventory. Yeah, exactly. Anyone listening can go to churchscaninventory.com and you'll see a very simple online assessment that measures things related to uh, corporate functioning, things like trust and leadership, things like communication, things like the spirit of your church, all those kind of a very brief takes 10 minutes of prayerful. Okay, again, that's churchscaninventory.com. Uh, it's also on your website, which is blessingpoint.org. .org. Okay. You can, all right. you can get there either way. Okay. You can even contact us about setting a composite one up for all the leaders in your church to take, because that's what yeah. we do with the churches. We ask them to take that. So it gives us a snapshot in time. I kind of compare it to a Carfax, you know, kind of what's going on below the hood of your church in a snapshot in time. And, and that helps us gauge where they're at, helps have a discussion with the leaders about where they're at very helpful. And then we will schedule a half-day seminar with the leaders. We want their spouses there. We want anyone from the church to come who's available. And there we explain the principles of corporate healing. So we will do an engaging, fun, uh, pointed seminar about why pain comes into churches and how we interpret that pain. 
And really the purpose of that seminar is to give the church hope because usually if a church has had a lot of pain, by the time they call us, we're the option of last resort. They're yeah. finally willing to ask for help, you know, or there's an urgent need for it. So they need some hope and that, that seminar really serves that purpose. And then we come back about a month later and do a two day retreat with the same folks. And we review the church's history from start to finish. We usually break it up into three segments. And then we are, we are really asking questions, model on those seven letters to the churches. Uh, what, what would Jesus commend in our history? What can we celebrate? What can we say, hey, this was a blessing. God would say, good job, well done. We, won't, we don't want to just look at the hard things. We want to encourage uh, ourselves with a balanced perspective that this ministry was not all about pain. There's good, effective, wonderful things that God did in our midst. We also look at the challenge. What would Jesus say are the challenges we face? Because in those letters, he talks about knowing the challenges that different communities had to deal with. Uh, challenge or, challenges are things that all churches face. They're not necessarily painful. Sometimes they're cultural outside the church that kind of find their way into the church. Sometimes they're unique uh, circumstances that that church faced they had to get through. Then we will look at the particular crises that the church has been through uh, in each era of its history. And we will ask the question uh, of the group that's there. What do you hear Jesus saying to your church? And we have had the most profound experiences because what kind of happens in that retreat is uh, the Holy Spirit is working through each person. Each person is bringing a different spiritual gift to the meeting. So one person can be saying, well, what happened was really, really wrong because let's say they have a more prophetic truth-telling gift. Another person might have a gift of mercy, look at the same problem and say, you know, we need to be a little gentle in the way we handle mm. this. The trick is it's the same Holy Spirit. It's not a trick. It's the same Holy Spirit speaking through all the diversity of gifts. But when you know you're hearing from the Lord, it resonates with everybody in the room. And we all go, we all just go, yep. Yeah, it's, it's obvious. Yeah, you know just because you know the Holy Spirit's revealed that. Mark, how, how do you uh, address uh, maybe someone's unease? I'm just anticipating how people react to, you know, when you talk about corporate pain, you, you've referenced um, to something historically that might have happened decades ago, and mm -hmm. the Lord's going to keep hurting a church because they never repented over that uh, in the past. And we'll get to that part of your process when you work with a church. Um, how, how, does, how do you keep that from looking, or maybe you see that it is the case, where this is an inherited spiritual um, you know, issue that is passed down from generation, almost, almost like a, uh, you know, you're, you're inheriting a spirit of rebellion or a spirit of, of, of anger. Uh, how, how do you help people understand that? Well, that's pretty much what, what happens. And um, we, we will turn to uh, a couple of stories from Scripture that we use to explain it. One is in uh, Matthew, where the Pharisees say that they would never do anything like their fathers did when they persecuted the prophets. And Jesus holds them accountable for the sins of their mm. father. And uh, essentially Jesus says to them, fill up the cup of your father's sin. And he knows what the Pharisees are going to do because they've never broken with that spirit of their fathers. 
And he knows that in the end, those same Pharisees are going to do what their fathers did in crucifying him. And so because the Pharisees never um, acknowledge their propensity to do the same things that their fathers did, they never had the humility to deal with what their fathers did and to confess it and to forsake it and actually set them up to repeat that in crucifying Christ. And down the road, it set them up to repeat it in persecuting yeah, the yeah, early yeah. years of its history. So that is one of the ways we help them see the repetitive nature. The other way is we go to an Old Testament example um, when Saul exterminated the Gibeonites. I believe it's in 2 Samuel. Mm-hmm. And this was something, uh, there's a three-year a three year famine in the land. And David, you know, after three years, does a very wise thing and, and seeks the Lord about yeah. the nature of famine. And the Lord tells him, look, it's not anything you did. It's because of something your previous administration did, Saul did, in killing the, in exterminating the Gibeonites. Now, uh, David, once he realizes this, brings in a remnant of Gibeonites that are still there and says, what can we do so that you will bless the nation? Hmm. And it's a very uh, wrenching scene because at first the Gibeonites said, no, don't worry about it. But then they say, let seven of Saul's descendants be hung for mm-hmm. what they did. So you know whatever Saul did was hugely painful because the, the, the reconciliation included killing seven men. And, and, but in the end, you know, the Lord found that acceptable. And at the end it says, once these acts of restitution were done, prayers, the Lord started answering prayer for the nation again. Mm -hmm. So while these issues were unresolved, prayers weren't even being answered. Mm -hmm. And so we we use that passage to help churches understand that things that have happened in the past, sometimes a distant past, because Saul's acts probably happened 40 years before David came along. Can can you give some examples of things that, that came out from a history of a church? I don't take any delight in, in sharing these things. Uh, a lot of it comes down to motivations for why things are done. Mm-hmm. I'd be surprised at some of the motivations I, we discover for why churches started. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one church we worked with where it was an active church, but the denomination they were part of was, was trying to decide whether they were going to accept homosexuals or not. And the church was on the verge of, saying, no, we're not going to do that. And like the night before the vote, they realized there was one thing they liked less than homosexuality, and that was their current pastor. And in a basement meeting, the elders decided that if we vote for homosexuality, our pastor will leave. They discerned this. So they voted for homosexuality, and the pastor left. Now the head elder found out about this scheme, and left in anger and started another church. They have two problems with that situation. Uh, the situation with the, the mother church, right? And then the anger that started the next church. It was almost like the church was started in the same spirit that Moses started. Yeah. And so now that church that started struggled and struggled and described itself as having kind of a bullying spirit. So they, they inherited the bullying spirit of the mother church and trying to get rid of the pastor. And they inherited the anger of the motivation for its founding. And they continued to have crises that were of a similar nature for 10 years. 
until they until they brought us in and the real stories came out and tears were shed and grief was expressed and repentance was executed and they they were fortunate enough to recover you know when a church starts uh it really does carry forth the dna of the mother yeah, church. yeah. i don't yeah. know if they're focused on missions or if they are evangelical or evangelistic i mean how things are operating behind the scenes of mm-hmm. church yeah the motives that people have for starting churches are just astounding yeah. I, I know church that said they wanted to start a church of the same denomination close to their homes but when they actually started the church uh, they started an independent church i said help me understand how a group of people from this denomination tells their pastor they're going to start the same denominational church closer to their homes but when they actually do they start an independent church yeah deception yeah, and the and the real story comes out that they were unhappy with the previous pastor's yeah. discipline by yeah. district superintendent. You know, so yeah. I, I I don't you know from my perspective, I listen to these kind of stories and I think how in what manner did you think God was going to bless your efforts? Mm-hmm. Starting like that, yeah. Sometimes it's the health of the church has started. The church has started is clean. But an unresolved, uh, maybe a church discipline issue enters into the life of the church, a powerful family they choose not to uh, confront. Uh, and so you have this irritant in the life of the church that keeps popping up through the years. Uh, sometimes it's sexual immorality. You see cycles of sexual immorality that happen over and over again. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say that that's been, you know, something I've been uh, personally connected with uh, a couple churches that my some family attended. There had been immorality decades ago and never resolved, never repented of. And you, you can almost understand why this church today is, is struggling so much. And then, of course, you know, I, I went to a church, pastored a church for a while where that is what happened, you know, adultery that was never, uh, never confronted, never repented of. And it, I think one of the reasons why the church was so hard, it was so difficult and, and hurting so much. Uh, you have what at the end of all of this. Once the Holy Spirit's working, people are identifying uh, sinful patterns. There's an attitude of repentance. You have what's called a solemn assembly. What is what is happening in the solemn assembly? Well, a solemn assembly is biblically an occasion when God's people corporately correct their relationship with Him. And um, there's a couple things happening in a heartfelt solemn assembly. Number one, there's recognition of unaddressed wounds and sin in the history of the church and the church's leaders the church's leadership takes ownership for that before the lord and confesses it and asks for an enabling to repent of those behaviors and uh so you have that sometimes if the sin was around the role of the pastor the pastor has to take responsibility for the previous sins kind of stand in the place of previous pastors who caused problems and repent in their behalf so if, so if the perpetrators are no longer there or not available, you've had the current pastor stand in for, right, for right. them. Interesting. This is very biblical. It's, you, you look at uh, Daniel did it, yeah. you know, when the seven years were We around. have sinned. He's, we have sinned. He yeah. included himself. He didn't sin, but he is identifying with the sins of his mm-hmm. fathers. Uh, Nehemiah did it. Uh, Moses did it. Uh, Ezra did it. So we have this incredible heritage and, and really an opportunity. You know, if, if the Lord calls churches to repent, which he does in those seven letters to the churches, how does a church functionally repent? What does that mean? Does that mean every individual has to repent? No. It means that the, the delegated authority to that church, the under shepherds of Christ, have the ability 
to stand in the place of previous leaders. Sometimes the leaders are current, and that's a different story. They deal with their own sin. But they could stand in the place of previous leaders, and just as David repented on behalf of Saul, they can repent on on, on behalf of those who have brought uh, sin into the camp. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you in a minute to talk about an exciting story that has come out of your ministry. But before uh, you do that, I, I assume that sometimes people come into this or bring you in with the hope of cleaning house and maybe the assumption that, hey, finally our church will grow. Finally, you know, we'll, uh, we're, we're going to you know, break ground on, on some of the hard areas. Uh, is that the case? Is that guaranteed? Or is the motive here just to be right before God. Yeah, it's. I cannot guarantee any of that. What I can, what we can work toward is turning the church back over to its rightful owner. Mm-hmm. You know, some churches have been sick. That. Some churches have been sick for so long, uh, and they're on their last leg. They may kind of bring us in as a last desperate attempt to change the trajectory of the church, which I'm not sure that's a valid enough motive to bring us in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I sometimes wonder when a church gets to that point, if the Lord is saying, look, I that's not my will for you. I, I think you're at the closing place, the hospice mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I want you to close with a clean heart. Yeah. Because when churches close in pain uh, and upset, upsetness, those, those dear folks who are in there, unfortunately carry those wounds with them to the churches they go to. Mm-hmm. Right? And then they get in leadership into those churches and they can infect another body. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I see it often. Intentionally necessarily, but they just bring those wounds and lack of trust for leadership with them and it shadows them. And so now, even if a church is going to close, if the Lord decides the church should close, and really that's what I encourage you to do, look, just because you've been healed, don't assume that he's got some glorious ministry for you to pursue. you really got to seek him about what the next step is. And in some cases, the next step might be closure. However, uh, if a church goes through this uh, process with a clean motivation, we have seen the exact opposite happen multiple times where God just starts doing things mm-hmm. to show his blessing on what they've done. And people do get converted and people uh, do come and start coming to the church. And we see these radical transformations and it has nothing to do with, with implementing the latest program that's being promoted in the kingdom. It's just God starts doing things mm-hmm. to me. That's the life and vitality of the vine flowing through the branches. And that's really what church should be about. Not, pushing the latest program into fruition. Yeah. God move in our midst. Isn't that what we really want to see? Isn't yeah. that what the truth is about? Yeah, that's that's good. Wow. Um, so, yeah, most exciting story from your ministry that you still, that still brings a smile to your face when you, when you think about it. Yeah. Well, there are a number of stories that fit that description. The one I will share with you, your, your listeners can research online because there's an article that I wrote about it that, that is out there. And the article is called the church with the rusty steeple. And if you just Google the church with the rusty steeple, you'll see a couple of, uh, a couple of links to it. But that is a story of a church. It just is amazing. I pulled up to the church to do the initial or to do the retreat. And I thought to myself, who would ever visit a church like this? Because the church, the steeple of the church was completely oxidized. I mean, it was red with rust. And I thought who would ever visit a church, this rusty steeple. 
And I got inside and it turned out, you know, as we're reviewing the church's history, there was an incredible story about why the steeple was rusty. But uh, this church really started, this church started in the 1920s in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, with all that that entails. It started by a young pastor out of California. He was a real firebrand. He came in. He was such a confronter. He confronted the local politicians who were corrupt. They tried to, to undermine his ministry by putting prostitutes in elevators with him and taking pictures and things like that. He couldn't go anywhere without his wife. Eventually, he was so uh, such a firebrand and got in the newspaper about it that the, the, that administrator was, administration was voted out. And his church just took off, and it grew to 1,500 people very quickly. He had a radio show that was heard across the southeast. They planted 13 churches in Alabama. This is Now, this is the, over the breadth of their early years, from the 20s to the 50s. They started uh, two Christian schools that were integrated. They integrated their own worship. They started a Christian college that's still in existence. They started a homeless ministry that's still in existence. But they did that in the first 30 years, but they got to the 1960s, and that pastor decided to go to a church in New York. So he had all his wonderful glory. He decides to go to a church in New York. The next pastor comes, and what happens in Birmingham in the early 60s, but um, the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. comes to town. And the church's location was directly across the street from the Greyhound bus station. I mean, 30 feet away. When you got off the bus, you saw this church. Mm -hmm. It was around the corner from uh, the 16th Street Baptist Church that was bombed. It was around the corner from the hotel where Martin Luther King Jr. would stay that was bombed. Well, lo and behold, one Sunday in 1963, who should show up at the church's door but Martin Luther King Jr. himself with 30 of his friends on a Sunday morning. With the purpose of worshiping there. Yeah, with the purpose of seeing if the church would worship and allow them to come into mm-hmm. worship. Now, this was a, this, we've heard of the sit-ins at cafeterias and things, but they also, uh, the civil rights movement also had these things called pray-ins, and they would frequently go to Southern churches to see if they would gain access to worship with white congregations. So this one Sunday morning, um, he shows up at this, this church, it was called the Gospel, uh, Gospel Tabernacle at the time, and um, he has refused entry in very dramatic form. Uh, the leaders with their hands on their guns, half drawn from their holsters. He walks away. Unbelievable. The next Sunday, the church that had been 1,500 lost half its people. The next week, they had lost another 50%, so they're down to 300 people. They limped along for the next 50 years. By the time I got there for that retreat, when I saw the rest of these people at the same time, they were down to about 50 people. Mm-hmm. Now, they had seen some progress through the years, but they'd also seen the progress recede, and they were a struggling ministry. The pastor that we were working with, his name is Ron Higgy. He had, he had come some years earlier, and he was a gifted counselor, and he did a lot of work to get the church internally healthy and did a wonderful job, but he's still frustrated because the church is not making overall progress. So he got exposed to our material, and, and we got called in. And As we're reviewing the history, this event with Martin Luther King Jr. comes out of the history, and everyone is shocked in 60, 50-some-odd 60, years, and no one knows this story. And they realized that, th- that this happened, and they realized it was a hinge moment in the life of their church when things went from blessed to distressed, and they never recovered from it. And they repented of that. It was an incredible service. The, the church is now a 
multicultural ministry that is reaching people from all over the world. And in an odd way, it's actually fulfilling uh, the vision of the founding pastor when he integrated the services years ago. Did anybody from the past show up in this process? Maybe, you know, even some of those elders. I know it's 50 years before, but were there any right. members or leaders? No, the elders were not around. What we did have, though, were the children of the leaders that were there that particular Really, really. And they, they reported just the palpable fear that was in the atmosphere on that day. Well, they still recalled it very clearly. These, these folks themselves are in their 60s and older. So, um, they recalled it clearly. And really, fear was the root problem because the whole community of Birmingham, the white community, and to some extent, perhaps the black community, was infected with fear mm-hmm. and angst and caution and, and tension. And the church, in this case, gave in to that spirit of fear, you know. It wasn't necessarily the act. It was kind of culminating in the act when they refused Martin Luther King Jr. entrance. But the underlying issue that caused that to happen was they're, they're, they're acquiescing to the culture of fear around them. So they had to repent of that spirit of fear, and they did. And, I mean, they saw God things happen after that. Unbelievable. The, mm-hmm. the rusty steeple part of the story comes out because – um, in one of its uh, building programs, they had a church split over the quality of construction. And really, it was poor quality because uh, the steeple, here's the tricky part about the steeple. The, the pastor called the steeple company and said, do you uh, warranty your steeples against rust? And the steeple company says, well, aluminum does not rust. And he says, well, the pastor says, well, I have the plans for the steeple. And it clearly has your company's name on it. Mm-hmm. And we have it. This is like the third time we've tried to paint the thing and it keeps rusting. And the guy says, well, what church is it? And Ron, Pastor Ron tells them the name of the church, which is Birmingham International Church now, but Gospel Tabernacle back then. And the guy on the phone says, oh, that church. So you know when a guy says, oh, that church is not good. And it turns out when they were building uh, the structure that um, the church leaders apparently did not want to pay the costs of an aluminum steeple. So they took the company's plans, and Birmingham's known for steel, so they had it fabricated out of steel, which does rust. And so they had this rusty steeple that pointed back to their deception of the steeple company, but it also became a symbol for their corroded history. Amazing. Yeah, it's a great article. I, I read it, and I will I will share the link on our website for uh, that article uh, that you wrote. And uh, also, you've written a number of books. Um, tell us uh, a few of the books that are related to this. Uh, there's certainly uh, Ken Quick's book, Healing the Heart of the Church. I will include that in the website. Yeah, yeah Healing the Heart of Your Church is the uh, prominent book. And if you go look it up on Amazon, you'll see a couple of uh, people who bought this book also bought a couple of mm-hmm. links. But if you know your church is sick, uh, Healing the Heart of Your Church is a place to start. If you're not sure your church is suffering these kind of problems and need to think it through a little bit more, I wrote a book called Diagnosing the Heart of Your Church, and that's on Amazon, or you can link to it at our website as well. We have another book called The Eighth Letter, Mm -hmm. which is a wonderful study of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and how Jesus spoke to them and how he's still speaking to churches today if we discern how he does it. Ken has a book called Body Aches, mm-hmm. which is the theology behind what we do. And Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, I've read all these books, and you, you're, you're a good author, and uh, you, you have some good editors that work with you as well, I, I've heard. 
Um, so uh, a couple things to sum up here that impress me and, and a great reminder for me, and I will be, I know will be for the listeners as well. Just a reminder, folks, that a church is the bride of Christ, that Jesus is, uh, has died for and will one day present spotless and blameless before uh, to the Father. And uh, the other, you didn't use this term, but I'm just reminded that we, the church is a spiritual community. Uh, it is not a club. It's not a social organization. It's, not, it's more than even a family. Uh, it's a spiritual community. And, and we need to be aware that spiritual things happen uh, in spiritual communities. And, uh, and, you know, a fascinating thing to me is that, uh, you know, when people get together at church, their common denominator is their love for Jesus, the love for the gospel. It's not their connection with each other. It's not that they're, you know, people don't go to church necessarily because their best friends are there. And, uh, and that's often why conflict happens, because personalities get in the way, people say things, hurt each other. Uh, but we, we grow as a family. And uh, again, the thing that we do have in common is our love for Christ. It's our commitment uh, to the gospel. And I love what you do, Mark. Again, there are very few people that do what you do. And um, I'm, I'm encouraged by the stories that I keep hearing from your ministry. So, so thank you for what you're doing. And uh, we'll uh, encourage people to connect with you. Again, we'll have links on the website. Um, anything you want to share in closing here, maybe to uh, a pastor who is wondering if his church is needing help yeah. like this? Yeah, I would say to that pastor, you're probably under a, a lot of stress your family is probably feeling the uh, repercussions of the pain that you are having to pastor in the midst of. And I just would encourage you to step back from that and realize that any ministry or frustration you're experiencing may not be due to your leadership. It may be due to unresolved issues in the church's heart and its history that you've inherited when you went there. So don't be too hard on yourself. But do seek these things out. And really, this is a process is about seeking the Lord about what's really going on in the heart of your church. He loves you. He loves the church. He wants to heal it. And whatever discipline he sends is sent in a, of, a, of a loving concern uh, for the condition of a bride he cares a lot about. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, I remember, Mark, uh, first time we really uh, connected was on a, a lawn outside the church during a lunch break at one of our conferences. And uh, I was very overloaded and burdened with the church that I was pastoring. And it was confusing me why things were happening. And we sat down and talked. And that's when you shared about your ministry. And uh, and I, I walked away from that realizing, you know, yeah, of course, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I take responsibility for, for some things. But uh, I walked away thinking, hey, um, I'm not necessarily the problem here. <laughs> and right. uh, so it was a, a great encouragement. And I know this will be uh, an encouragement to uh, a lot of people as well. So thank you, Mark. Thank you for being available to this. And thank you for what you're doing. Well, you're welcome, Mitch. I love you and I appreciate you. And uh, keep up the good work. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Before You Quit. If you have any comments or questions about anything we've talked about today uh, on Before You Quit, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us, especially if you have any questions about what we've talked about today. I encourage you to go to the website, uh, blessingpoint.org, and take the church scan survey that we talked about. And it's a great diagnosis to uh, figure out uh, the condition of the heart of your church. 
So until next time, stay encouraged and be courageous because serving Jesus is worth all that hard stuff that comes with it. And remember what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged. Stay encouraged.